When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Doug Lemmery and Nathan Bear doing Monday Madness. We're going to talk about what we saw on a rewatch from the Ohio State spring football game. We're going to talk about roster management, where the Buckeyes are maybe over at some positions on scholarships, where guys might be leaving. There are people flying into the transfer portal every second. Right now, now that that window is open, that will continue over the next 10 days or so. We'll talk about that, and then we'll wrap it up with what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. But Nathan, you and I both rewatched the game, and why don't we just go back and forth with like what caught our eye? If you guys didn't listen to it, we did a good 90 minutes with Steven after the game. But, you know, you go back and you find more things. Maybe not as many things in this in the spring game as you do in a regular game. But Nathan, where do you want to start with uh, what caught your eye? So I wanted to go back and rewatch specifically what with on what went on with Kyle McCord. We all graded him after the game. I gave him the lowest grade of the three of us, a C minus, which those are very like impromptu things that we're not we haven't done a rewatch yet, so it's just kind of off the cuff. I, I specifically wanted to see rewatch things with more detail um, to see where his decision-making was and also see how much he really was being affected by what was going on around him, especially with the offensive line. I counted, I want to say probably a third of his 34 attempts where I thought pressure uh, to some extent was, was changing what he could do with the play. And I, I didn't go back and analyze where that goes against a, a regular game. That's, that, that seems high to me. Um, to have that many times where games were changed. And on some of those occasions, uh, for instance, there was a play early on in the game where he still completed a pass to Marvin Harrison Jr. for first down. So it wasn't like every single time that happened, it led to something bad. But there were many times where I thought either guys were getting pushed back into him or he's getting flushed out of the pocket. or And in a couple of those cases, he didn't even get a chance to... Um, really even attempt to pass. And on a couple occasions he did, and or at least one that I can remember, and it was dropped. So if you're grading him on statistical things, you can easily see, and I think there were like maybe three drops overall in the game. So 
now you're talking about 21 of 34 for 200 and some yards. It looks like a better day overall. So I would probably slightly raise my grade on McCord um, based on what I saw, but still probably only be in that C range only because I think that, as we've said all spring, uh, to some extent, the guy who wins this job is going to be the one who does the most in less than ideal circumstances. So I think we can pair an offensive line discussion here again. And we talked about this after the game and every, all you guys, a lot of you guys watched it. I thought again, like the first quarter, maybe like the first quarter, I felt like the line held up. Okay. I thought by about the middle of the second quarter, the offensive line was getting beat to the extent that it almost just blew up the entire offense and it almost yeah. made it hard to evaluate anything. And even early on, it felt sometimes what the offensive line was doing was just getting in the way of guys long enough for maybe the quarterback. But I don't know that they, I don't know. It wasn't like great technique. They weren't still, it was like, well, I'll, I'll throw my body in front of JT Tuimolo out and see if I can keep him off Kyle McCord here for at least a second and a half. So I think it, it gave you a taste of like, this line's going to have to hold up better than that for this offense to function. And so we knew that at the time it, I thought even again, like coming out of halftime, maybe the first series, the offensive line was better. And then it got worse again. It almost felt like maybe they wore down a little bit. I, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I think you did get a real sense of what would the effect be if this line can't protect the quarterback. And so if you don't have a quarterback who's going to run like crazy, or you don't have a quarterback who's going in, going to instantaneously diagnose the defense and just get it out of his hands, right? When we had Ryan Day talking about Dwayne Haskins, he talked about his quick release. The Boom, the ball was out. Boom, the ball was out. And they ran some ran a lot of routes in 18 to sort of take advantage of that. So I, I did think, was it at the end? You talked about this on the postgame podcast, the Kyle McCord touchdown pass to Carnell Tate. Mm-hmm. That was right the first play of the fourth quarter. And you said Kyle yeah. was saying, well, that was a chance. We got in the huddle and really worked something out. But I also saw at the end of the third quarter, he hit a couple short throws and got in rhythm. And it felt like it led to that. It feels like off the spring game. If this offense, if this passing game can be in rhythm, which is back to Dwayne to me, it's a bing, bang, boom. If it's a bing, bang, boom passing game in rhythm, and then you take a deep shot, it feels like that can work. But it feels like rhythm is going to be really important to a young quarterback, to a quarterback who's not going to run like crazy, right? You just did, let's get it out of the hands and get it to these spectacular receivers but the offensive line has a duty to hold up to some extent to allow that rhythm to happen, Nathan. And so, again, off the spring game, my impression was, if this offense gets out of rhythm, hey, there was a there was pressure in in, in McCord's face, and he had to he had to dump it off for you know to a covered running back for a one yard gain. Now it's second and nine. I think you can see how all of a sudden it's going to completely change things, and so. You could feel the offense get out of rhythm at time on Saturday at times on Saturday because of the pressure. And then that's when it got clunked up. So they're obviously connected, but they they are really gonna need to at least give Kyle McCord a couple seconds to get the ball out for a quick passing game. Yeah, that's true of any offense. That's true of any quarterback. I think that that rhythm is important, that getting in the flow of a game and just kind of getting comfortable. A a couple of things. One thing I do want to point out from the pressure, I I recognized at the time that that Mike Hall was having, I thought, a good day. I thought he looked even better on 
the rewatch and he was beating Matt Jones several times there. And I take that. That's the one where I say, Oh, I think that's probably a good thing for Ohio state actually that, that oh, yeah. he's going to just beat a lot of guys. So, so bake that into something that's going to be hard for any team, any quarterback that they play, they're going to have to deal with, with the Matt Jones, with the, the Mike Hall thing. But the other thing, I really wish you could see this exact performance, like go into the multiverse and and do this exact spring game, except Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka and Julian Fleming all play like a lot of first team reps. They play as many first team reps as the first team corners play reps. And now see what this day looks like, because even with all those problems, I think you're still going to see receivers who are doing a better job getting open on some of those deep looks or making plays on the ball and doing more with the underneath stuff. But they didn't take obviously a lot of deep looks, and like even one of the ones that they did. I thought on retrospect, and I pointed this out in when I wrote about immediately after the game, kind of going step by step through McCord's day, there was that shot to Ballard deep that I think if he had just thrown it a little bit farther, Jalen Ballard gets there. Jane Ballard gets there, and that's a long completion probably. But when I rewatch it, there is a guy coming in at the end. You wonder how much just that little bit changes what kind of air he gets under that throw or the precision he throws it with. So just a bunch of little things like that 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 added up to a day that statistically doesn't look as, as strong, but they, they, they obviously are going to have to be better at the tackles. But I also think again, on rewatch, it, it did reemphasize to me how much I just think that those receivers, the, the absence of the receivers stood out to me again on the rewatch. So we, we both noted that we'll save it a receiver thing. I, I'll lean back into the defensive tackle thing you just talked about with Mike Hall. I thought, and again, I think it's a different thing. There were times when it wasn't the tackles. It was the interior offensive line that was getting beat. But Donovan Jackson and Matthew Jones were returning starters, as you said there. That feels like it's more reflection on, oh, the defensive tackles are playing pretty well. I thought we saw some defensive tackle depth. Hero Canoe was doing some things. Jada mm-hmm. McKenzie was doing some things. And you throw that into Ty Hamilton had a pressure. We know what Mike Hall is doing. We know what Tyleek Williams. It felt like, okay. If you weren't exactly, you had your top three at defensive tackle. I thought Canoe and McKenzie both showed up in a way that maybe reinforced, okay, they always want to rotate at least four defensive tackles, sometimes six. What's that look like in there? I thought I thought Canoe showed up. I thought a couple of those guys that, okay, no, I think they're, I thought we saw good defensive tackle depth that Larry Johnson should feel good about going into August, right? Well, so it's an interesting thing. We'll talk about this maybe more in the roster dynamics, the sec- second segment of this. There, the defensive line right now is kind of an all-killer, no-filler situation because I think they would probably like to add some bodies on the defensive line maybe in this portal if, if the right person was there because Ryan Day has been talking about this. It's not that they don't think they have really good quality, like, but they're a little bit light scholarship-wise in that room. And adding somebody, maybe especially a tackle where they do rotate so much, would would make some sense. But the quality of every guy there, like there's really not anybody. Who in that defensive line right now do you think, oh, that's probably not a guy that needs to get on the field in an important play? Like you can mm. you can start to see it like almost any guy. Like I don't know if you want Hero Canoe if the game is tied and with, you know, Notre Dame is driving in Notre Dame stadium to go ahead. I hear canoes, maybe not the guy you want at defensive tackle, but if he had to be out there, maybe he could make something happen. I think you start to see the upside creeping through on just about everybody involved in that defensive line room. And that's obviously now getting down to the Kenyatta Jackson level 
the Omari Abor is is has looked a lot more competent this spring after not getting to see him at all last year because of injuries and stuff. You still got Mitchell Melton hanging out there. That's the guy that Jim Knowles is excited to get back because that's who he wants to play around with with Jack stuff. It's just an interesting like they're you know compared to the offensive line where they are heavy on scholarships but uh, light on guys that they believe can do the job like believe can do the job. It's the opposite on the defensive line, I think, right now. Yeah, so I thought, and again, that those things work in concert to produce pressure on a day like Saturday. All right, what's another thing you saw, Nathan? We mentioned the the play of the the defensive backs after the game, and I just it re- one thing that I wanted to bring up was that it wasn't even just the guys at the top, and I thought this was a really good sign. I think Stephen mentioned uh, that he thought Ryan Turner had a good game. Uh, Jermaine Matthews, I thought, uh, you know, uh, there was a play, uh, uh, an incomplete pass in the end zone that was intended for Tate that Jair Brown had really tight coverage on. It's it's not just those top three guys. I thought you were seeing it all the way through the cornerback room. Guys who were just finishing plays really confidently. And last year, the top of the room was not finishing plays confidently. And now that you're starting to see that, it, it, it's something we've been kind of leaning at all spring but it's important that you're seeing it now all the way through the room that there doesn't really seem to be a a gap in terms of just the the competitiveness that these guys are willing to take out onto the field now as everything we've talked about this spring there is you you have to put that in the context of yes some of the best receivers in the country were not on the field or barely played on saturday and that changes the, the, the maybe they don't dominate quite as much. But to me, that's not really the thing. It's it's the attitude that those guys were playing with. It that's almost what was missing the most last year. There were there were definitely some fundamental breakdowns, but I thought they were related to attitude. And you can then, as we've talked about, possibly related to just the confidence that those guys were playing with because of injury situations. So just the rewatch, it was it, to me. I kept looking for where was the breakdown in that, where was the gap that I missed, and I I. Didn't really see it. I thought pretty consistently. Yeah, I mean, there was the touchdown pass late where they got Jair Brown one-on-one and and, and Tega behind him and, and McCord hit him. That's going to happen occasionally. But really, I mean, even with all the problems that this, this offense was having that day, to only give up one true explosive play, one explosive touchdown to the first string offense is a pretty good day. So I'll stay in the secondary and, and move to a guy that I think Believe it or not, we didn't talk about enough after the game immediately, which is Sonny Styles, And we talked about it some. So w- there were two clear plays when he's playing a deep safety spot and you can see him break on the ball. And he had one where he broke on a pass to Jelani Thurman over the middle and he almost picked it off. And he had another one where he broke and delivered a hit. And if that's a, a real game, he's probably really delivering a hit on a guy. But he had a play early. On a third down, I think it was a third and three, maybe in the second series for the first team offense, where they dropped him down and they had him in coverage in the slot on Caleb Brown. And when I went to the, they had chalk talks for the coaching clinic, the Ohio State coaching clinic on Thursday and Friday, where by position group, the, the coaches broke up and went to, you know, you could go, oh, I want to learn about safeties from Perry Eliano. I want to learn about offensive line play from Justin Fry. I went to Tim Walton to watch him talk about cornerback play. And it's just the basics of cornerback play, but I almost feel like this is Sonny Styles, six foot two Sonny Styles, 
who still should be finishing up high school right now. And I feel like the way he played slot corner on that play is like teaching tape. The way he squared up and then turned and ran with the guy and stayed right on Caleb Brown's shoulder and pinned him on the sideline and there was nothing there. And it's just a situation of here's the 6-2 guy that you're – where are they going to play him? But we're talking about on third down, right? Are you going to go to a a look where you have like a true corner playing the slot? They just put the 6-2 safety in the slot, and he just played perfect man coverage. So in addition, he's a guy who can read and break on balls as a safety, which that's how you make picks. That's how you make – game-changing plays, right? You can bait when you get to the point where you can bait some quarterbacks into some stuff, or you can go sideline to sideline. And I can't believe that safety got there to give help, but also can you line the guy up in man coverage and say, cover this guy. And he was like, yep. Some, you know, one of the texters after the game was like, are, we, are they for real? Like they're not going to start. They, he's sometimes you have to check yourself a little bit. Do we talk too much about Sonny Styles? I thought everything from Sonny Styles on Saturday was like, yep, and that's different. It's just different, and it's how wherever you put him. And then I'll also say, and opportunity is different, but we've done it a lot, to lump C.J. Hicks in there. C.J. Hicks can cover, man. You're not going to get a real sense, I think, of a linebacker making tackles in a situation like that, but he can cover. He got his hand on two balls that he was, you know, an inch, you know, an inch away from making two different picks. They're just guys – that are going to be on the minds of quarterbacks, I think. So Sonny, is, it clearly has the path to the field, but I thought Sonny Styles popped in a way that most people listening to this all saw themselves as well. Yeah, and as long as you're throwing in young guys, I also want to mention, I thought Gabe Powers had a really good game. Um, another guy who was, you know, he, he was only with the twos, as, whereas Hicks got to move up and play with the one defense. But just the, even on like showing some nice tight coverage on a, a Noah Rogers on a crossing route, I thought, and taking him down w- was good. Um, but with the Sonny Styles question, to me, that was maybe the, the final frontier for him because athletically we knew what he was and physically we knew what he was. But the, the showing those coverage skills at this level against this receiver's room was maybe the big final test for him to be like, well, what, what are you worthy of? What are you ready to do? How much can you help this defense? And when he's going out there and doing those things, I think that starts to answer that question. So, you know, we've been impatient. Fans have been impatient. We, we, we wanted, we wanted to come out on April or March, whatever it was, and see Sonny Styles starting with the ones and be like, Oh, the, the new era has begun. And, uh, it doesn't really work like that. I think what, what, what we'll see this fall will be, more important, and I'm still, I still assume that he has to be on the field a lot this fall, like a lot. What else you got? We didn't really talk about Marvin Harrison Jr. much because he didn't play very much on Saturday. He only played the first couple of series, but when he did play, they were lining him up in the slot, which is something they said they were going to do, move him around, and if that's something that follows through to the fall, you see where it's going to be just a problem for, for defenses. Um you know, getting him matched up with, with Cam Martinez, I mean, he's, I guess he's a plus matchup wherever Ohio State wants to put him, but like just, you know, being able to bring him on a crossing route across the middle of the field. And then on the next play, have him do one of those things that I thought was sort of a, I call it a Garrett Wilson route where he's moving horizontally, but also advancing vertically in the route kind of at the same time. One of those almost on a, 
on a, a horizontal or a, like a like a diagonal through the through the through the defense and and then taking that vertically. Um, it's you get to do a lot of if he's expanding his route tree that way and and being able to um, victimize defenses in, in that many different ways. I mean, it lets Ohio State maybe put some different receivers on the field too if it wants to. But it's just it's just something that they can have a lot of fun with this fall if 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 they follow through on it. Was it just a thing they were doing in the spring game to make teams think they're going to do it? I don't know. But but they said they're going to do it. They said they want to move him around, and I think he's showing that he's capable in that role. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt they're going to move him around. And I think all the things Ryan Day really had plans for Jackson Smith and Jigba last season that were not able to come to fruition. But I thought that Cam Martinez play you talked about as a third and eight. And they have Marvin inside. And so, I mean, you can hunt matchups. So this is not a shot at Cam Martinez, but the way we've talked about Denzel Burke and Jordan Hancock this year, that for Ohio State in man-to-man coverage on third down, that'd be the weak point compared to Burke and Hancock. So you, you hunt a matchup and you drop Marvin inside and put him on a slot corner. And they are going to, I think, attack defenses so that I just defenses don't know where he's going to be from snap to snap from game to game. And that's going to affect their ability to double him. It's going to affect their ability to, you know, where do we line up our safeties and have them shade a certain way. But I thought that was a perfect example because it looked like an easy third down conversion. And it was, it was a pass right on the sideline, but it's because they hunted the matchup. And so we're, does it mean that Marvin Harrison Jr. is their slot receiver? No. It doesn't, but we probably are maybe even just going to have to throw those out the way we talk about the team in the fall because their their goal is going to be to get Marvin all over the formation so that a defense doesn't know where he's going to be lined up. So you can't play something, and I'll be very curious to see whether defenses try to have their best corner shadow him, but that makes it difficult. If you have an outside corner shadowing Marvin, but Marvin comes inside, now you've got to put your inside corner on the outside, right? Would you do something like that? Or you try to bracket him in a way, but you just don't know where he's going to be. So it was just a little taste of it, Nathan, but I think it's a, a big indication of, and it's not for Marv. It helps Marv, but it's not for Marv. It's for the quarterback. And it's yep. for Ohio State because if you just line him up at X receiver and then teams can just say, okay, well, we're going to have a corner and a safety over him the whole time and he's always going to have two guys on him, that's too easy. So that was a, a real indication of that. And, again, it's the type of routes those guys run. You you talked about the the one coming across the formation that was the big gain. His His third catch was – a crossing route through the trash underneath that often is like a slot route. But then when you're hitting that little slot receiver and letting him turn up field, when you're trying to, you know, get a, get the defender caught up in the trash across the middle field, it's Marvin. It's Marvin. It's, it's the best guy in the country catching a little thing and letting him go. So I, I, I think we're, it's not unfair to take a lot away from that, that that was, that was that in action. And it doesn't mean that you don't want Emeka Abuka catching that route too and getting to turn up field, but Marvin's going to be all over the place. And I thought that was maybe the biggest thing that came out of how the offense operated on Saturday. I think 
you hit an important note there that it's for the quarterback too. And especially it might be for this quarterback because whether it's McCord or Brown, like what are you, if you're a first year starting quarterback and you've got the best player in college football in your receiving core, who are you, who are you, who's your fallback guy? And now if defenses are scheming to take that away because it's so predictable where he's lining up, what he's going to be doing on a given play. Now it almost becomes a handicap. I don't, I shouldn't say handicap, but at times it could be that if you know that that quarterback is overly reliant there. So now by moving him around and it, it, it it's now it's Ohio state with its offense kind of forcing the action. I know the defense is, is, is somewhat a reactionary thing anyway, but you try to, you try to reverse that. You try to mitigate that by the way that you line up, but by moving him around like that, and that's more, I mean, They've done it a little bit with other receivers in the past, but I think the extent to which we're going to see it this year with him, um, the indications from, again, not just Saturday, but other practices we saw this spring would tell you that that's going to be a, a significant thing this fall. Anything else from the rewatch for you, Nathan? Those were my main things. Did you have another receiver point or is that the one that you were going to bring up? No, that was mine. That was mine. So that hit, that hit all my points as well. Uh, okay. We, you know, go back and rewatch it. If you guys want to it, it's always one of those things we're watching it through binoculars. We're taking notes as it's happening. And then you go back and watch the TV thing. It's like they're interviewing Paris Johnson. It's like, uh, everybody loves Paris Johnson. Can we make sure we don't miss a play? We're trying to see. (laughs) I I didn't even catch. I wanted to catch even. They never had like a great angle on the coverage off the line of scrimmage with Jair Brown versus Carnell Tate on Carnell Tate's touchdown. And I was like waiting for the replay to show like, did he have a great release? Did something, what, what happened to let Carnell Tate get behind the defense there. And if you didn't catch it live, the broadcast never, never gave it to you. So I even think, I think the big 10 network possibly called it the Ohio state spring practice. And I think they did not even necessarily label it as a game scrimmage scrimmage game. I was having trouble finding it on, on my, uh, my YouTube TV library because it wasn't, it was like, you know, I thought I had screwed up and not recorded it. It took me a while to find it. Yeah. Okay, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about roster management for the Buckeyes next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Lamarice back with Nathan Baird. All right, Nathan, so our scholarship chart, I believe, has Ohio State at 89 scholarships right now. Is that correct? But I believe that counts offensive lineman Avery Henry, who is engaged in a a battle with cancer at the moment. And so that, that is a... You stay with the team. You remain on scholarship, but your scholarship would not count against the team when you have a medical situation like that. I'm I'm double checking on that as we speak this morning. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because the NCA rules are written in such a way that it says if you have a illness or injury that um, would prevent you from playing ever again, then you don't have to count that scholarship. So Harry Miller, Marcus Crowley, those are some examples of recent years where they've used that. But then if you then later come back, circumstances change, as it says, then you can just go back on scholarship. So it, it isn't like, I guess, a permanent thing, but I'm, I'm clarifying that exactly as it relates to Avery Henry and what that'll mean for this fall. Which, where, how his roster, his scholarship counts on the roster is meaningless. In, it's meaningless. Yeah. But it we're just only trying to for talk this about discussion. Right. So best of luck to Avery Henry as he continues that fight. He gave an update a couple months ago, continuing that. So thoughts are with him. But I think we can work from 88 instead of 89 with that. So we'll, we'll work from 88 and and using the handy dandy when Ryan Day outlined like the ideal number of scholarship guys that you would want on the roster. I think in the end, Nathan, as you said, they're actually a little short on defense. So I don't think they want anybody on defense to go. 
they're heavy on receivers and they're heavy on offensive linemen. So does it feel like we, and maybe one heavy on tight end, Yep. yep. right? Should, yep. should we maybe anticipate, and this is one of the things, this is when I am less reluctant to get a little specific because they're over. This, this discussion is not theoretical. They can't have this roster when the season starts. They, they're not allowed to. So people have to leave. And so when you look, it's like, well, you know, Lincoln Keenholz isn't leaving, right? Mayan Williams isn't leaving. So it's like, okay, well, it's not quarterbacks. It's not running backs. They don't want any defensive linemen to go because right now they only have seven defensive ends and eight tackles. Ryan Day said they want eight ends and eight tackles. So that's linebackers. Maybe, maybe they they don't want somebody, but if you just look, they don't need a, a linebacker space, but you could imagine if there's a guy who feels like he's getting passed up, I don't know. Corner and safety, I feel like they they want the guys they have because we think they're six deep. Court Williams is coming back from injury, and they have a bunch of true freshmen coming in. So really, is it only a receiver, offensive line, tight end discussion, Nathan, in your mind when it comes to the likeliest places for Ohio State to lose guys? Yeah, I mean, how many – where are they at on safeties? Is it like 11 safeties that they have so right now? they have 11 – no, they have uh, they have 10, okay. and Ryan Day said ideally they'd have 11. Okay. So 10 or 11. So I yeah. I don't think that's where I, it is. I, I don't think that's where they would lose, certainly. I mean, you could see a, a, a situation where maybe one would leave. I don't know. But, but yes, predominantly this is an offensive line tight end receiver discussion and receiver is a little bit tricky because a lot of those guys are only they've got a big glut in second year guys who are trying to figure out where they are right now in a pecking order and are blocked by the best receivers in the country and then have this really good receipt freshman class coming in behind them tight end and offensive line it's a little bit more clear cut because now you've got third slash fourth year guys who are out there as third string guys and that's those are the guys who transfer yeah, so we can't talk around it a million times. They, let's go to tight end. Tight end, they probably want five. They have six. They have Cade Stover, who's the starting tight end. They have Joe Royer and G. Scott Jr., who have been primarily the second-team tight ends. You know, they're, they're tight ends two and three. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that. And then they have Jelani Thurman as a true freshman that people are really excited about. And then the other two guys are Sam Hart as a third-year guy and Bennett Christian as a second-year guy. Nathan, and we just don't hear their names very much. So that's the situation and, where you have Thurman as a young guy who's opening eyes a little bit, and then you have your top three established. It certainly is possible that they would lose one of those two guys, right? Potentially, yeah. And, you know, Sam Hart is from Colorado. Bennett Christian is from Georgia. We've talked about that in the past, too, is sometimes a a factor in these things. That it, if unlike maybe the offensive line, where you have lower-ranked developmental guys who will stick around, it just seems less frequent that that happens with guys who are national recruits and get blocked. So then, so I I think that doesn't. I don't think it's a guarantee, but I think it's it's we, by the numbers, it's certainly possible. Offensive line. Can I say we're, they one have thing this real group quick. of young? I, I yeah. just want to mention one thing real quick. Also with that tight end group. Uh, Patrick Gerd, who is not on scholarship, was actually playing a lot in the spring game, kind of with like second team stuff. So that's another thing to factor into this. That sometimes 
there are even walk-ons who push in. I mean, on the offensive line, this is important too, because I think they have 18 offensive line scholarships, but Toby Wilson, who's not on scholarship, pops in there too as an interior guy who's getting a lot of reps. So th that's an important thing to remember too. It's not just the scholarship count in some of these cases. That the three blocks, Chip Trainum had the, whatever it was, 65-yard touchdown run. The three blocks that sprung him for that were Tegra Shibola at right tackle, Patrick Gerd at tight end, and then Kojo Antwi down the field got a block on the sideline as a good receiver block to kind of finish off the opportunity for that. So that's Patrick Gerd in with the twos doing his job. So, so point taken on that. It does have some effect potentially. Offensive line, they have a bunch of these young guys. So there's three redshirt freshmen in George Fitzpatrick, Carson Hinsman, and Tegra Shibola, and they're all either first team or second team. And then you have four true freshmen, Luke Montgomery, Josh Padilla, Austin Saraveld, and Miles Walker. So they're not going anywhere. The seniors are Matt Jones, who's a starter, Vic Cutler, who just got here as a transfer, and Enoch Vahi, who's been around forever and is a second team guy right now. And so it's the guys in the middle. It's the fourth year and third year guys who aren't playing. So Donovan Jackson is playing. Josh Fryer is in a battle to be a starter. Zen Mahalski is in a battle to be a starter, which leaves Jacob James, Trey LaRue, Grant Tutant as fourth year guys and Ben Chrisman as a third year guy. Chrisman is a second team guard at this point, but you know, you don't want to, well, we're not going to apologize for it. Ohio State has too many players. Friar, James, LaRue, and Tutant were this recruiting class that we've talked about a million times when they brought in a bunch of lower-rated guys. And Friar in year four is the only guy in the fight for anything. And so you would imagine the other three guys, and I know Jacob James might be in the fight to be the backup center, but also he really wouldn't be because Matthew Jones would slide over and they'd play somebody else at guard. Like he's maybe battling to be the second team center on paper. So it's Tutant, it's James, and it's LaRue, and I don't think they can all be here in the fall. They don't have the room. I agree. I, 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 I think that is the area where you're going to see multiple guys leave, just because, just for the numbers. Like, it, it's it's not just that they don't, what you have to look for is, because we hear this a lot from our texters, too. It's like, a guy will only be in, like, his second season, and it's like, well, if he's not starting yet, isn't he going to leave? Like, he's going to transfer, and we always have to explain to them, like, it's not necessarily, is he starting now? It's like, is there even a path to him ever starting? And for some of those guys, there's just not. There might not, they're not even in the two deep conversation right now. Those guys you're talking about, some of those those fourth year guys were warming up with the threes on Saturday. And I will say, so like we have to interrupt ourselves. You shouldn't be able to like kick players who didn't do anything wrong off the team. No. So this is one of those situations where, hey, these guys have to transfer. And, well, what do you mean they have to transfer? But, but, they're on scholarship. They're here. But it's the the reality of the situation where players and coaches can have conversations and things become apparent, Nathan. But it is. I don't – they're not getting booted exactly, right? I mean, like, we have no. to be careful also how we talk about this. No, but they have – they have frank conversations, obviously, about what, how much these guys are ever going to play, and and whether it's worth, you know, g going through what it what you have to do on a day to day basis to do that. The other thing to remember is, I remember a basketball player that I covered one time transferring, and I got him on the phone, and it was kind of just talking about why he made that decision. And he, one of the things he brought up was, I didn't want to be a distraction. 
And that's a different situation. You're talking about a smaller roster. There's different uh, a different microscope when it comes to basketball versus football sometimes, especially when we're talking about offensive line. But I would just say that you don't want to be the guy who every everybody, these other 85, 90, 100 guys knows is is kind of causing a problem, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. I think that it's no, but not see, that but I don't think it's fair to say, but, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't use the word problem. Right. Because that's, that's what not I'm saying. That's, being not the word I'd like good to enough to play is not a problem, right? No, it's, it's, it, it, again, that it's, 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 they're almost paying for a mistake the coaches made. That's why I've always thought that there, that, that there shouldn't have been the, the one year sit out for transfers. Cause a lot of times it's as much the coach's fault for recruiting you in the first place as it is. Why did, why did, why does the player have to pay the penalty? The coach doesn't, but, um, no, you're right. Problem's not the right word, but you don't. You just don't want to be the guy who is, um, who I don't know what the best way to say it. I don't know the best way to say it, but I think there's just, you know, you understand what I'm getting at here at all. Like it's no, I know, but but like I do think the words matter because somebody has to. When you have 85 scholarships, somebody's got to be the 85th guy on the roster. If you lined him up and said, "Let's line up one through 85. Right, right. One is Marvin Harrison Jr. Who's 85? Someone's got to be 85." You can't say, well, you know what? Everybody, once you get to 40, everybody's tied for 40th. It's just not true. So that player, someone's got to be third string, right? There's only, you know, only 44 guys are, 44 guys are are first string or second string, right? Half the roster's not. So So it's one of these things where if if you're a player who said, listen, my dream is to be a Buckeye. I know I'm not going to play. I'll work as hard as I can in practice. I really want to graduate from Ohio State. I love it here. I love football. I love it here. But I'd rather not play here than play anywhere else. And if that guy wants to stay and he's going to class and he's had zero problems off the field and he works as hard as he can in practice and he's just not quite talented enough to play, but ideally they could use the spot because they're over, Shouldn't that guy be able to stay? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm not saying that they should get pushed out. But I think the the frank conversation that is probably happening in some of these cases is, hey, like, we really appreciate everything you've done, but do you know how you're with the threes warming up at the spring game? When so-and-so enrolls this summer, he'll be with the threes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that. those no, are the no, conversations that will happen. But but the but the idea is I mean I just we, it's one of these things. There was a time when I was very wound up about teams being over on on numbers, and I thought it was like a huge problem. But the assumption, Nathan, is like that you have the hard conversation, and the player says, "You know, you're right. I don't want to be with the fours. I'll leave." But what if he says, "Fine, I'm fine with the fours. I'm going to work. I'm going to be the best four I can be." And if you have nine offensive line injuries, I will be as prepared to play as I possibly can be. I don't want to leave. And if they have frank conversations with five guys and all five of the guys say that, then you're at the point of forcing guys out. So I don't want to be, it's so normal. It's so normal. It happens all the time. And there may be some guys that ideally Ohio State, frankly, would like to keep, but a guy's it's a guy who's more of a second teamer or a second slash third teamer who thinks I can play. I'm going to leave. I want to go play. 
Right. right. So those guys in Ohio State would say, actually, you know, we're losing number 61 off our roster. We'd rather lose numbers 86, 87, and 88, but we're losing number 61 because number 61 thinks there's a power five place where he can go play in the fall. Right. So we just have to acknowledge that, that the crunch, the number of crunches that happen here and the way college football is set up, that you bring in the new people and knowing that probably people are going to leave, but not knowing 100% for sure that you have to come in. You have to be over right now. Otherwise, you might get to August and be at 82 instead of 85. So right now you're at 88 or 89 instead of 85 so that you can be at 85 in August. Sometimes real people can get squished by that. And the calendar, it remains the sports calendar versus the academic calendar of college sports doesn't sync up in a way to make all of this perfect. So I don't want to be blasé about third and fourth string guys who want to be Buckeyes. I don't want to be blasé about, hey, oh, you're not good enough to play at Ohio State? Guess what you were? You're good enough to get a scholarship to Ohio State, which is the point 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 zero 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 one percent of people who play football. So we have to be realistic from a football standpoint here, Nathan. But also, sometimes these conversations are for farts, man. Hey, let's have a frank conversation. Yep. I don't want to have a frank conversation. I like it here and I'm doing my best and I've done nothing wrong. And sometimes that's not enough, unfortunately. So, well, no. And, and especially because the guys you're talking about, I think in the recruiting process, it's not like they're talked about, Hey, we want you starting by year two. You're always thought of as like a long-term developmental guy who's there to provide the infrastructure of the program, right? And another thing that needs to be brought up is Ohio State did bring in three transfers in the winter. They brought in one at cornerback, where they're still light on scholarships. They brought in one at safety, where they're pretty much right at the number they want to be at. Then they only brought in one at a, a position where they're heavy, and it was also someone who is also probably just one of those infrastructure guys. And Vic Cutler, like it doesn't look like he's not starting at center right now. He got some time with the ones this spring, but I don't know that he's going to beat out Carson Hensman. And as you said before, the second option there probably still is Matt Jones. So <laughs> it almost like added to the to the problem that they, again, not to use the word problem, but the, the issue uh, of, of extra bodies at, on the offensive line. So um it's it's not fun. It's not a fun time. And Ryan Day said that. We he was asked earlier this week, and he says it every time somebody asks him about transfers. It, you know, it's a delicate situation or, or something like that. And it is because the, the you know people have to. Uh, they come here with aspirations. I think even if you're a lower ranked guy who is coming here, like you come here with aspirations to be in the mix and at least get on the two deep, and you'll get a chance to play. Like you're you're trying to be the number two tight end because that means you're in on twelve personnel and you're in the mix or you're. 13 personnel and you're the fullback guy and you're playing in goal line sets. Like you still have a role and you're, you're being the best special teams guy you can be like uh, people want all of those things, but there is a limit. Like they can't, they can't take everybody. They can't take everybody to August. Right. Well, it's not, they can't keep because they already took them. It's like, right. Take everybody into August. Took the reservation. You took the reservation. Did you hold the reservation? So, (laughs) Enoch Vamahi is an interesting guy because Enoch Vamahi is not quite good enough to start here. He's good enough to be in the two deep, but I think he'd be good enough to play somewhere else. So he would be a guy who at this point in his career 
Ohio State, I think, would be happy to keep him. But if he he's from Hawaii, if he wanted to get to the yeah. West Coast or something, right, just go say, I'm going to go play at a group of five. I'm going to go play in the Mountain West and start in the fall. I think he could do that. So that would be a 100%. guy who is is higher up the depth chart, but maybe at this point in his in his career, if he wants to be a starting college football player, could have a decision. And, and the, But the flip side of that, I would actually maybe say – if Ohio State got the end of the spring and was like, you know what, we were wrong. Like we tried these other centers. We think we need to play Matt Jones there. Well, I think maybe Enoch Vamahi does start on the interior on this team. Maybe. So I don't know. That's one of those those he's in a weird tweener spot. I, I and I, I and I think he would have another even though he's a senior, would he have another year next year? Because of the COVID year, he's another I guy think. who could be around next year. It's hard to keep track anymore. But eligibility is impossible anymore. It, it it's no, it's it's tough. And actually, I would give Ohio State some credit when they've started giving us they started giving us rosters now that just have the eligibility remaining instead of trying to figure out what class they're in, which I think is the the best way to do it. But he he's the he's the one of the guy the one guy in this mix that I feel like has the might have the toughest decision just because he, he is so close to having a bigger role. I mean, he could be the Matt Jones of this year's offensive line, the, like the 2021 Matt Jones of this offensive line. Mm-hmm. He could, he could, he could be the sixth guy. He could be the sixth guy. I, I also, it might be somebody who doesn't win at tackle is the sixth guy. But yeah, they they have to figure out. And we're going to talk in a second about potential additions, potential additions. The last thing, the, the last position group is at receiver, and this goes back to something that we've been talking about for a long time, which is the second year group of receivers with the first year guys kind of coming in and showing some stuff. Xavier Johnson and Julian Fleming as your seniors. They're not going anywhere. Marvin Harrison Jr. and Mecca Book as your juniors. They're not going anywhere. Jaden Ballard as a third-year guy who who redshirted. So then it's Kojo Antwi, Caleb Brown, Caleb Burton, and Keon Grace are these these four guys that are second-year guys. And then you have Brandon Ennis, who's not here yet, and then Bryson Rogers, Noah Rogers, Carnell Tate, who were here for the spring. Thirteen is a lot. Like they are. They are pretty yeah. over there. And part of that, I think, is Xavier Johnson sort of morphing into a scholarship receiver after being various times a walk-on running back, a walk-on receiver, a walk-on special teams guy. He's now a scholarship receiver who's their, either probably their number four or five guy at receiver. So that takes a spot that wasn't there in recruiting. You just have to be realistic about this, Nathan, that even you know the the, the group that's four years ago now that it was – Jackson Smith and Jigba, Julian Fleming, G. Scott, and Mookie Cooper. Mookie Cooper moved on pretty quickly here. It would not seem unreasonable from a number standpoint that from the group of Kojo Antweed, Caleb Brown, Keon Grays, and Caleb Burton, and again, Caleb Burton hurt his foot in the middle of the spring and wasn't able to finish it out. Maybe, maybe there's movement there, and it really is only from a number standpoint. I just don't know if they can really carry 13, I, I don't, I don't know if the roster is going to fit that because they're under on defense and they're heavy on offense. And it just feels like maybe there's movement here. Yeah. And but from either a recruiting ranking standpoint or the Xavier Johnson uh, proved it on the field standpoint, it's another all killer, no filler group too. Right. I mean, it's all guys that we think are, you know, uh, potentially at some point starting caliber guys. So, but it, it is just such a bloated number. 
to have uh, whatever that is, it'd be like what 15% of your roster or whatever are, or maybe more than that are, are one position um, where you're only starting three guys and where you're sometimes even taking 13 out of defense. Yeah. 15% of the roster, um, man, that's, that's heavy. That's just so heavy. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I assume that there would be some movement there too, but it's also going to be, like you said, it's guys who are, it, it's it, the other issue there though, is those top four guys next year are gone. Like Harrison, Ibuka, Fleming, right. Johnson, all gone. Like that room, there's going to be a battle Royale next spring to decide who the starting receivers are. And uh, it's going to be a, a very interesting spring next year at receiver. And I would not fault anybody in that group from saying, well, I'm just getting started here. Uh, I want to stick around and, and see if I get in that. Because again, the payoff is huge to be a starting receiver at Ohio State. And again, if, if Ryan Day is saying ideally 11 guys in that room, Brian Hartline, the last four years at receiver, brought in four, three, four, and four in the recruiting classes. So he's over-recruiting that number. And I think he's doing that with the idea of we're probably not going to have a bunch of guys get to year four. That really, his math is more like four guys per class times three, which is 12. And then you have maybe one guy, there's some attrition there, which gets you to 11. Because again, you think about four years ago, so there's only one guy left. Fleming's the only guy left from that group as a fourth-year guy at receiver because Mookie Cooper transferred, Jackson Smith and Jigba's going to the NFL, and G. Scott's a tight end. But now you've added Xavier Johnson in there, which bumps you one up there. And that is almost enough to just sort of have you be, you know, if, if Julian was completely healthy his whole career, Maybe he's in the NFL draft right now. And if Xavier Johnson doesn't become one of the better walk-ons in the last 20 years of Ohio State football, he's not in there right now. And you might have a receiver room where you have no fourth-year guys and you're at your 11 and you're perfectly on. So I think Hartline, this is the number he's going to keep shooting for, four, maybe sometimes three per receiver class. But the result is they're they're – if you don't have everybody leave by year four, you're going to get to some tough decisions because why are they over? It's because they have two fourth year guys. So, but you're not like, you're not mad at Julian. It's like Julian Fleming. Brian Hartline loves that Julian Fleming is here. Xavier Johnson. Brian Hartline loves that Xavier Johnson's here, but it creates a number crunch for the young, younger guys. So I think it, I would guess, right. It's a guess. At least one receiver maybe goes here. Nathan, would that be your guess? That would be my guess. Yeah. Okay. The last thing where there is, by our chart, we have two kickers, a punter, and a long snapper on scholarship. They don't need two scholarship. They got to get this kicker thing sorted out. They have been all over the place at kicker. Like this is the, like, I don't, I don't, I don't even, I don't know what they're doing. I don't, they have a 400 kickers. They have 400 kickers. Last year, the kicker wasn't even here for spring football and they were fine with that. Can they, is it like when you're crunched, do you need two scholarship kickers? Like what is happening? What is going on in that room? No, I, th- I think it's fair to say that kickering, kicker recruiting has been bad at this, at, at Ohio State at this point. Kicker recruiting and or development. Pick, pick which one you want to be uh, guilty of. But uh, I mean, last year I thought was a perfect example of it where you had, um, you had a transfer kicker um, in um, Noah Ruggles 
who was your place kicker. And then you had another scholarship kicker uh, in Jake Seibert, who wasn't doing anything. He was playing cornerback last spring and in the preseason, I guess, preseason camp. I can't remember. And and then you had a walk, freshman walk-on who was your kickoff guy. So you don't even have, you have, you're using two scholarships on kickers, neither of which are good enough to be your kickoff guy. Like that alone tells you you failed, right? Right? Like yeah. you, you missed, you failed. So uh, again, this is one of those things where I, I feel bad because it is not the fault of someone like, we'll just, I guess we should just say Jake Seibert, who's now going into what, third year now and really hasn't had a role yet. And he was brought in as a gray shirt when they are, and then they, then he missed a field goal in the spring game. So they brought in Noah Ruggles and it's just been a mess. It's been a mess since Blake Hobby. It's been a little bit of a mess. Now, not, not that, not that now no Ruggles kicking was not usually a mess. He was very accurate, very, you know, he was very reliable as a place kicker. I'm not saying he was a mess, but in terms of like management and like building long-term it, it's, it's been off. So they, you're right. They, I think they have to figure it out. And I, you assume that probably means Jake Seibert looks to play somewhere else, assuming Parker Lewis is the guy. But, but I mean, Jade Fielding was kicking field goals in the spring game also on Saturday. Yeah, so Parker Lewis is transfer they brought in from USC, and he's on scholarship. Jaden Fielding is the guy who was the kickoff guy last year who remains a walk-on, right? And Jake Seibert, Jake Seibert was actually a big recruit at kicker and just has never... It's just never worked out here. And so he's in year four and he's still on scholarship and it just has never really happened. And now they also have the long snapper is John Furlman. He's a transfer, right? He's a transfer who's on scholarship as a Correct. long snapper. Yes. Okay. Arizona. But when you're tight, that the plan is three scholarships for the special teams. One for your kicker, one for your punter, and one for your long snapper. And there used to be a time when long snapper was not a scholarship position. And you found somebody who wanted to come here and do that, and you didn't use a scholarship on that. And I think there used to be a time when, like, I'm not sure Woody was, like, using the scholarship. I think when I talked to Tom Skladani, the greatest punter in Ohio State history, that was the first time Woody Hayes in his life ever offered a punter a scholarship. Because it was like, we'll just find, we'll find some guy walking in the quad who can kick the ball 35 yards, right? So if you're over four on special teams is too much, especially for kind of uncertain special teams. You know what you're getting from Jesse Mirko, but you had to bring in a, you're bringing in a transfer long snapper. And then the, the kickers, you're not exactly sure that's forced too many there. They might have to do something there, but again, and this is an example. I don't know what the conversation has been. Jake Seibert's been here a long time. He's still here. He's doing the best he can. It hasn't worked out the way I think he expected or Ohio State expected, but he's still here. If he doesn't want to go anywhere, like what are they going to do? But you, you can't, you can't be bloated on special team scholarship on special team scholarships when you're trying to run a tight ship here. So um, I don't know. I don't know, man. I think you make a good point. It has not been smooth in in the kicking room uh, the way they've gone about this. So. It's just another example. If you've got a special teams coordinator, if you're if you're devoting that those resources to one guy, like I, I don't know. Again, it's just judging by the Ohio State standard. Then, like, how are you not going out and finding the best option and developing him? Um, we're just it's just the way we look at every other position, right? They've just been so reliant on transfers there. Like transfers are supposed to like yeah fill in the last hole, right? It's supposed you can't build around transfers. They're they're 
they're plugging holes. But they've this is they're going into like their third year where it's going to have to be a transfer. An ongoing. Mike Nugent played here, man. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is but this has been an ongoing thing. All right, so that's they've they've got to have some out in the roster equation. Could there be some in in the roster equation? So there are guys flying into the portal, Nathan. I don't think we need to have a huge discussion on this. We've kind of stated the case of they're not just going to take anybody, but it's the idea of could they get somebody in the portal that they think could go right into the two deep? And I don't even know if could. I think it has to be a would. This person would go straight into the two deep. And because if you're in the two deep, that means you might play. You're one abduction away from playing and they have to trust you to be able to do your job. So we just don't know what's going to happen. But you're just thinking about, for instance, let me give you a for instance on a guy. There's a guy named Cortland Ford, who's an offensive tackle, who's in the portal from USC. He started 12 games in his career at USC. Eight of them were in 2021. Last year, he started their bowl game. At the end of the year, he had some injury stuff in the middle of the year. So he that was, I think, his only start last year. He's 6'6", 305. He was only recruited, uh, he was ranked in the 600s when he was recruit a recruit in the class of 2020. But he's someone who has started 12 games in his life at USC. He's reportedly visiting Kentucky already, planning to. The Kentucky's very in on that. That level of guy, right? And I don't know what his PFF grade is. He was good enough at USC to start at one time. He kind of wasn't good enough to keep it, but he's a tackle. Is that level of player someone that you think Ohio State should be interested in a serious way in bringing in out of the portal? So the way that I phrased it, because I wrote up a little thing about the portal this morning, was I think you have to, if you're Ohio State, you need to be finding exclamation points, not more question marks. They already have a lot of question marks at tackle. And I look at a guy like that as kind of just being another question mark. I'll give you another example. Let me ask, but aren't more, if you have a bunch of question marks, aren't four question marks better than three? I suppose. um, But again, when you're already long on bodies on the offensive line, um, who, who, who is, who, who are they better than for sure? I think that's, that's the problem. Um, I'll give you another example. Ohio State has like six guys in their offensive line room who could not start 12 games at USC. I think there's no doubt about that. uh, That's probably true. I mean, there's, so there's another guy, Oklahoma State starting left tackle last year, Caleb Etienne. He's in the portal now. Um, Another guy who is a a former three-star prospect like Ford was. Um, I did look at his PFF grade. It was 51 last year. None of Ohio State starters graded lower than 75.7. So that's a gap. You know what I'm saying? Like I, and, and I, I can't remember. I did look at Fords at the time. I think he was in that similar ballpark. I think somewhere in the fifties ish. I'll double check it right now. But th- this is kind of my point. It's that just because a guy was playing somewhere doesn't mean, and even if they were playing at a power five and even if they're playing at a good power five, that doesn't mean that they're Ohio state. Actually, so Ford was 63.6 last year on his overall grade. And it was 59.7, but he didn't play as much last year. 59.7 in 2021 when he was mostly a starter. So that's kind of the bottom of the adequate range, probably. 
And I, I, I understand where you're going with this, but we already just talked about how how many conversations you're going to have to have with guys who are who don't have a, a spot right now. And it's it's who th- these guys. I mean, may, maybe they'll add one of these guys just to be in the mix. I don't look at any of these guys and say, oh, I think that guy solves this problem. No, but here, but I think you're I don't you have to look at this portal window differently than other portal windows. This is now the desperation portal window. And if you ideally want, this is not the Jonah Jackson, Justin Fields, Trey Sermon, Tanner McAllister exclamation point window. This is the, (laughs) we got through spring and I don't know, man, question mark portal window. I, I think this is a different conversation. And now I'm talking hardcore football. I'm not talking about hard conversations with players and is it fair and all this kind of thing. I would take a question mark on the offensive line. I would take a question mark. Only on offensive line, the depth, like you said, on the defensive line, maybe they could add a number. I'm not worried about the numbers. I'm worried about, I'm not so sure that they, so you're saying like the Ohio State standard. I don't think they are at the Ohio State standard on the offensive line and they're too deep right now. No, I, I, so I wasn't arguing that. So you're not beating the Ohio State. No, I know. So it's like, but so you have to change. I would change my standard in the portal. I would be. Well, they've already I done that. A little potentially, bit, they have, and I think, and again, like you have to, we we have to be realistic about how we talk about it if and when it happens. And anybody was like, "Oh, Vic Cutler coming from we like, come on," but do you, no, I know what I you're saying? Not, I know, but but there's also, I mean, here's the I other, think, but there's here's the other little wrinkle that you have to remember about this. So you bring in one of these guys, former three star prospect, and now they're getting even. Let's say they only. Are they don't beat out anybody, so now they're your two. But now, is it better for Ohio State that that guy's getting two's reps than Montgomery in the fall? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's, there, there are ripple effects down the rest of the roster here too, as far as how you're trying to develop some of these other guys. What do you, what do you necessarily gain in the long term? It's not about the long term. You've got to try to win the national championship this year with Marvin Harrison Jr. and JT Tuimolowau and Travion Henderson and Cade Stover and Tommy Eichenberg and Sonny Styles. You've got to win right now, and you can't have your offensive line potentially hold you back from that. So if you can upgrade from using PFF numbers now, if you can upgrade from a 60 to a 68 in the level of play you're going to get, that might be two plays a game that go better. Than if you didn't, like I am just wide open on that. And listen, they've got to develop Luke Montgomery. Like Luke Montgomery getting second team snaps right now is not the make or break kind of thing. If Luke Montgomery is ready to help you, if Luke Montgomery is ready to be a two, Paris Johnson was ready to be a two as a freshman. He competed for the job and didn't win it. If they would have needed, if some, if some, if Nicholas Petit Frere gotten abducted by aliens and you had to play Paris Johnson at right tackle as a freshman, I think he would have been ready to do it. So if Luke Montgomery is that great, then let's see it. He's not there this spring. Maybe Justin Fry has that in the back of his head. I don't think that that there should be enough faith in the current structure of the offensive line to be turning down question marks in the portal that have played in the Power Five. That would be my thing. And that's not the only definition. Just because you started games at Oklahoma State or USC is not the end-all, be-all. But guess what they don't have right now A tackle? Guys who have started games in the Power Five. 
And I also don't think we had anybody who blew people away in the spring. So, you know, I'd take yeah. somebody. Josh Fryer has started games in, in the Power Five. And they've had NFL tackle, tackle, right? At guard? At no, guard? He started, no, he started at left tackle. He started at right tackle against Indiana last year. And he uh, then played most okay. of the game oh, at right guard got against, sick. against yeah. Michigan. Um, and they haven't had Power Five starters partially because they've had only NFL players at tackle for the last two years. So that's been a factor. I'm just saying the other thing is, though, part of this conversation is sometimes why it's hard to get those that level of guy to Ohio State. When it's when it's a no-doubt guy who would start for Ohio State, it's very easy for Ohio State, I think, to bring that guy in. When it's a guy that you're telling, hey, we need you to come here and compete against three other guys who are just like you to start, that, I think, is the reason why they haven't landed some of these transfers. I think Vic Cutler was a very interesting kind of mindset because he was a guy who even if he's only going to be a backup is still really leveling up to come up from Louisiana Monroe and to take his shot up here. So I, I, I'm, it's just, I, we'll see, but I, I'm, I, I don't know that I look at these guys who are available right now and say that this is going to have a, a major effect on the roster. If they bring in one of these guys or not, that's, that's available. But it right. Might. Now. I don't know. You're, you're, I don't know. Okay. I just do you agree that the lens through which they view transfer possibilities should be slightly different right now than it normally is, especially as it relates to the off to offensive tackles? I think it's fair to or say you, that maybe I wasn't factoring in the level to which this is desperation mode. But I also don't know that they look at it as complete we'll see. What they say to us uh publicly, very different than what they're saying in that room. Sunday morning after they go back and watch the film for the spring game. You know what I mean? Because Ryan Day will say, well, we actually believe in the guys we have. We think they're good guys. We think, you know, over the summer preseason, we can get them to where they have to be. There's good things there. It's just not consistent enough. That's what they say publicly. If they really believe that, then I don't know how much they're actually in desperation mode in their minds. Okay. Uh, I'm very interested in the portal possibilities. And just looking through, again, the tackles that were in the portal and that moved, there were a lot of schools that brought in, a lot of big-time schools brought in transfer portal tackles this offseason. And I remain a little befuddled that Ohio State wasn't one of them. I don't, I don't know what missed there. Maybe that was some NIL stuff that they didn't have everything in a row. And I don't know. I understand what you're saying of and and Ryan Day has sort of said those things of we're not going to promise jobs, we're not going to promise guys are going to be a starter. We have the guys here who are working hard and that can work against you if a guy feels like he is being sort of like guaranteed a chance to start somewhere else. But I don't know. Maybe just get some NIL money together and say, "Hey, well, we're willing to pay our second team tackle this much money in NIL too. So come on in and try to help us." That that will be I guess a better uh, option for them this time than it was in, in the winter. Uh, I would also just say, not to be a, a total smart ass, but like Ohio State isn't recruiting national offensive linemen right now when they have four years to build a relationship. What makes you think they can do it when they have like four days to build a relationship? Like that's it's a deficiency right now. Like they're not getting those guys in any capacity. That's why they're in this position they're in. Yeah, I mean, I guess because you can say to a guy right now, you're good enough. We think come come play for a team that has a chance to win the national championship. And and you've already done the development. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm very curious to see. I'm very on alert 
this is one of my alerts. But, I'm very unalert for portal guys yeah. at tackle that could help that could help them in some way. But and like, I do think they probably have to widen the net. The USC could win a national championship too. So he, that guy probably but wants he's to already leaving. To play. But if yeah. this, well, that's true. But sometimes you just get frustrated. Sometimes you just get frustrated where you are, and you're oh, willing. I you know. just want to change the scenery. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Like if you were in the portal, if you were in the portal right now and someone said, you know, yeah, that actually would be fun. We could, we should do sports writer, sports writer transfer portal at some point. That would be a fun exercise. Okay. We'll wrap that up there. Roster management there. They're three or four over. They've got to figure that out. They're heaviest at receiver, offensive line and tight end. They're a little light on defense from a numbers from a pure number standpoint, it feels like defense is where actually they could use a guy to add, but they're but the quality of the, of the defense is pretty good, as you said, Nathan. And it feels like I just think they could use a guy on the offensive line and maybe they'll still be open to that. Okay. When we come back, we'll do what you watching, what you eating, what you thinking. We'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan, we're back. You are a food connoisseur. We haven't done Monday Madness in a while. I'm assuming you've been eating some good stuff. What you what you eating? So when I first moved here, uh, I lived in the short north, and I think I talked back then about how I used to enjoy just walking down High Street to the North Market, which people know there in the Arena District here in in Columbus. A lot of different food vendors. It's a good place to like go upstairs, work. You could get hot chicken takeover. You could get uh, there's like a little Somalian place, like all sorts of different food. Uh, we moved over to the east side, and last year they opened the East Market, which has a smaller number of vendors. But anyway, there's a place there called Winston's Waffles. I think there's some other locations. And I've been there a few times, and I thought, oh, I thought this was, this was pretty good. And the last time we went, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I switched, because usually I just got, like, the normal waffle that would have, like, some toppings on it. But they have these this thing called the Baron, which is like a waffle sandwich. They take two smaller sort of, like, Belgian waffles and make a sandwich out of it. And I got the Baron with chicken which is like, you know, southern seasoned chicken, green onions, fried egg, cheddar cheese, like a little sauce in there. And it was like one of the best breakfast sandwiches I've ever had. It was mm. spectacular. Uh, and I can't wait to go back there and have another one because it's like all the savory, like seasoned chicken and all those like savory things in there. But also this like the Belgian waffle has a very sweet, you know, like that kind of sugary, almost crunch to it. Spectacular. Yeah. 10 out of 10. But that's a breakfast. That's a breakfast. The, yeah, like you can go there, you know, anytime. I don't know how late they're they're open, but um, it's definitely like a breakfast thing that we do is go there sometimes in the morning. And it's really fun because right next to the Franklin Park Conservatory and the um, the park is there, so we like to take our son over there and walk around. There's a playground. Um, so if you're ever on the east side of Columbus in the morning, check it out. So mine is also waffle related because Ooh. I'd been waiting for this uh, like mini chain store to open near my house chicken cone and we have been like oh chicken cone. it's like a waffle before, cone it's a waffle cone and with chicken in it and it finally opened so my daughter and i went and it was like it's just like a waffle cone with with chicken in it <laughs> like <laughs> the waffle the waffle i got like wasn't particularly cooked very all the way through and then it's just sort of chicken chunks in a waffle cone which actually you kind of just get home and dump the chicken out of the waffle and then eat the chicken and then take bites of the waffle. And the idea of, Hey, I'm going to have a waffle cone full of chicken. Like in practice, in theory, it's like, what could you, 
how many other ways could we figure out a way to feed these these horrible people like me chicken fast food chicken it's like i don't put in a waffle cone but it just like it just didn't do it for me and then the waff like the waffle cone wasn't as good as a waffle cone that you would normally get like at an ice cream store so it's just like a, a little mini suitcase. It's a carrying case for your chicken until you get home and dump it out. So I don't know, man. I I guess we're out of ideas of way to serve of ways to serve chicken to people because this was the last frontier and kind of exploded on launch, man. I don't know. It's just I a, don't know. Just a cone. I predict it is not the last frontier. I, I predict that they will find another. <laughs> vessel by which to serve you chicken you specifically like that would be that fucking that's enough that's an off-season podcast <laughs> what are the remaining ways to serve people chicken because we've already gotten to the thing where the chicken is the bun right that mm-hmm. kfc's done that so the yep. chicken is the bun we have the chicken on the bone we have the big chicken we have the little chicken chunks we have chicken tenders i don't know i th- well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get great ideas from the Texas. If you have the next frontier in chicken service, send us a text and we will mention it later. But um, this one just did not all the anticipation and it just kind of didn't didn't do it for me. So no offense to uh, to chicken and a waffle cone. All right. What you uh, what you watching, Baird? So I'll go to one that also didn't do it for me. Um, My wife and I have watched, this is the third season now of the Jack Ryan series. that's on Amazon. We really liked the first two seasons and we were eagerly anticipating this third season. There's some actors on it that we really like. Obviously, John Krasinski, um, uh, you know, Jim Halpert himself, Wendell Pierce, who people know from The Wire and other things, Michael Kelly, who people might remember from um, uh, House of Cards. He was like the, the henchman there in the first few seasons. A lot of actors really like, I thought this season felt really flat. And the best example of it I can give you is like, I think authenticity is important in these like spy shows. Like you want to believe that like you're, I don't know. I do. I, I, I have that standard. Like it's hard for me. And it was really, it's weird when you're watching, it's like they take you inside like the cabinet meeting with like the Russian president and all of his uh, cabinet officials and they're just speaking English. Like they're speaking English in a Russian accent. You're like, they wouldn't be speaking and like, that's okay. I get it. Like you have to do that because this is an American show. It's an English speaking show, but there's a pivotal scene where uh, I won't go through the whole season. Like it's, it's like Russia and the Czech Republic and then the CIA, America, Jack Ryan. And America is like with the Czech Republic here trying to solve this problem. And they're, 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 they're racing to the scene of this thing. And Jack Ryan like hitches a ride on the, the, this helicopter. And on the side of the helicopter as it's flying there, it says in English, Czech air force. And (laughs) it literally took me completely out of the thing. I like turned to my wife and I said like literally like the most, the most climactic scene of the entire series is happening. And I have to turn to my wife and be like, would it just say in English Czech Air Force on the side of a Czech Air Force <laughs> helicopter? Like, why? I don't need to know. Like, why doesn't it just? It shouldn't say anything, really. But if it's if you have to put it there, like it should be in whatever language they speak in Czechoslovakia. Do they have their own language? Do they speak German? I don't even know. But I know it's not English. I know it wouldn't say it in English. It would not say. It makes no sense. And it really just ruined the the experience for me so it's a fine show it's not a high stakes you know it's not reality 
So whatever, it's fun. And the, again, the active performances are typically pretty good. I just feel like they kind of uh, half-assed it a little bit this year. Yeah. No, I think Czech is a language. So that would be. I think you're right. I think Czech to, is. To have that on the, on the, uh, my, some of my peoples come from uh, the Czech Republic, former Czech Republic. And so um, does, is there a moment, are there any moments where John Krasinski as Jack Ryan just turns to the camera and kind of smirks <laughs> like. No, it's the it's the opposite oh, no. of Jim Halpert. It's a lot of like him uh, grimacing and looking very determined and and walking with purpose. I think we watched the first season of that one and didn't didn't get to the second season. Uh, all right, so I have two quick ones here. One is I'm trying to. I just have the same old sitcoms on all the time for like a you know you're eating lunch. I want 15 minutes of mindless TV, but there's so many movies that I feel like I should watch. I make lists of. You know, all the Christian Bale movies that have ever been made, all the Denzel Washington movies that have ever been made, all the Meryl Streep movies that have ever been made. Like, have I seen them or not? Have I seen every Dustin Hoffman movie that I want to see? Have I seen every Matt Damon movie I want to see? So I'm trying to like Oscar winners, like just I'm trying to work through stuff just in chunks and be willing. Like, I just I know I can't sit down and watch two hours, but I'll watch it in five, six, 20 minute segments or something. So I'm trying to work through stuff. And I found like two movies that really like felt connected to me and we're in media. They weren't about podcasts, but they were about media. One was network, which is like mm-hmm. from 1976 and won all Classic. these Academy Awards. And I've never seen it. You got, you guys have all seen the clips of I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. It's that movie, but I'd never watched it. And like my wife said, we've in our heads, have gotten it confused with broadcast news over time mm-hmm. because they're both about TV, but they're very different. Very different. But if you've seen Network before, I mean, mm-hmm. it's been around forever. I yep. just watched it. But it's so prescient of where TV is now. It's like unbelievable. And the guy who wrote it's like a genius. He won three Academy Awards. Patty but Chayefsky. to watch it now, and and that the whole world has already come to this, but like I'd never watched it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy totally nailed where we were going as a society. And then I also watched End of Tour, which I had never watched. And I love mm-hmm. Jason Siegel. And this is the movie about David Foster Wallace. And that also is about how David Foster Wallace, the author, is like, TV is eating us alive. He's he's clearly addicted to TV, but he denies himself about it. And he's, he thinks it's ruining culture. It's a great double feature of TV ruining society. And they're, you know, 40 years apart. But I just happened to watch them both in a 48-hour period. And I was like, man, these are really speaking to me. But I also want to say... The end of tour movie, and this is weird for us because we are journalists. I am amazed sometimes. Journalists are so self-indulgent. We are so far up our own butts. It is unbelievable. And put Buckeye Talk right at the top of the list. You could not be more (laughs) up your own butt than we are. But that end of tour and um, like the the Mr. Rogers movie – End of the tour. And the Mr. Rogers movie they made a little while ago with Tom Hanks. Both the framing devices for those movies are the the movie is based on a piece that an author wrote. Right. But the framing device for the movie is let's go watch the author do the interviews for the thing he wrote. Like there's not a different – there's not a better framing device you could come up for this. And I think it's interesting because I'm a journalist. So I like watching movies about journalists hanging out with their subjects to create the piece that then the movie is based on. I cannot imagine that normal people think it's interesting. Why would a normal person want to watch a journalist do an interview? Hey, here's a journalist going to McDonald's with David Foster Wallace. This movie's great. 
It's ridiculous to me. We're so self-indulgent. Well, so I think we should say the important thing about End of the Tour, and um, I, I like that movie a lot. Jesse Eisenberg also saying he plays the journalist who is the framing device for the, for the movie. It tells you very early on. I don't think this is a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. David, David Foster Wallace committed suicide, and it happened after the original time that the the author had been following him on this tour. So it's kind of all flashbacky. And I, th- I understand, I guess, what they were trying to do with that because they're trying to give you, you can't really do it as a true like biopic of Jason Siegel or of, of David Foster Wallace, where you're just following him through his life. It's all about this. It is encapsulated in this short period of time. And the, the vantage point is, the, the, I guess it's it's making the it's making the the putting the viewer in the perspective of the person doing the interviews. You only have that short window to do it through. Um, so I understood that framing device there because it was talking about that that specific point in time. But uh, I, I think I, I definitely felt it more in the Mister Rogers movie actually, which was based on a um, w- one of the great writers of like our time. Like Tom Junod is a is right. a grandmaster at this. Like he's one of the great magazine profile writers of all time. He wrote for the the Falling Man that people might know about the the nine eleven story. People should go find that. It's just, just there's guys that do things that I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Like that's and he's one of those guys. And um, oh, there's there's a lot of those guys. <laughs> but but <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying like oh, there's only like one or two guys that I that will never outright. Like there's a, there's a bunch of guys, but uh, and women, but. Uh, but uh, that one I felt even more so it, it, it kind of got a little heavy handed on like, I'm supposed to be feeling these things about this reporter. I'd really rather know a little bit more about Mr. Rogers. They do a decent job in that movie with it. But I, I thought into the tour, though, they still were able to give you the insight that you needed into the the conflicts that were going on inside the head of David Foster Wallace. Yeah, journalists, whatever. We're fine, but we are self-indulgent. The last, the last thing, other thing I watched is, and I told you about this, but I'm just curious, live music consumption, I'm not a huge consumer of live music. I have not been to a ton of concerts in my life, but I went to a show on Friday night, the night before the spring game. I drove to Cleveland, and I was there until like 1230 at night. I got home at like 3 o'clock in the morning, the night before the spring game, which probably wasn't a great idea. But it was uh, middle-aged guy heaven because it was a cure cover band and an rem cover band and i stood and danced and jumped around and but mostly just you know i didn't sit for four hours of live music and i am wasted my legs don't work i am i am exhausted and i realized i'm too old to consume live music like that but it was like a last speaking of last gasps it was a last gasp for me because the Cure band, the guy who was the lead singer, looked like Tim Ryan, which is like, okay, here we are. I don't know. Like this is, it's just, it could not be more middle aged dude. It was the middle aged dudeest thing ever, but not like thirty eight year old middle aged guys, like fifty eight year old middle aged guys. So, I'm curious about how much people, once you get out of your twenties, how much do people consume live music, particularly in a venue like that? Because it's a small ballroom, it's not seats. You're, you know, you're like drinking a beer. I don't drink beer. So I drank three diet Pepsis, but, and jumping around and standing there, that's a young person's game. Is it not Nathan? Or are there a lot, are there people out there who are like, Oh, I'm consuming small venue, live music in my thirties, forties and fifties, like 
twice a month. Well, I think the important thing is that like with any physical activity, if you haven't done it for months and or years, then when you go do it, you're, it's going to, you're going to feel it the next few days. I think if you were going to a show every month or every couple of weeks, you'd get used to it. Your body would adapt. I don't know, man. So I don't know. I thought it was great. It's interesting. Like once you have a band that you love and REM's my, the only band that I've ever really felt connected to, and they've been disbanded for a decade. It's the only way to like replicate that. You have to have somebody who likes the band as much as you do, who can sing their songs because you love, you love the band, but you love the songs. So they, they did this band did like a really good job of repli- replicating it. So I, I, you know, I was saying like, Hey, thanks for doing this. Like afterward that this exists. So God bless cover bands, man. It's hard <laughs> to be a cover band. I think at the band itself still exists. I don't know. They're yeah. like, you know, which is the case with the cure. Like but the if there's like a wonder plays, they still exist. I think so. I don't know that. But if there was like a, like a one direction cover band, I'd go see that in a heartbeat too. So anyway, you just start one. Just a middle-aged dude. <laughs> I want to say Tim Ryan, if a guy who looks like Tim Ryan oh. can be the lead singer of a Cure cover band, I can be the Harry Styles of a One Direction cover band. No, why not? First of all, I want to know how many people are going, who, who is Tim Ryan? And they're like Googling Tim Ryan right now. Oh, yeah. That guy was already anonymous yeah. when he was running for vice president, let alone 10 years later. No, Secondly, no, well, he ran for Senate, ran for Senate. No, 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 ran, ran oh, for Tim, Senate, ran for Senate in Ohio. Not oh, that Tim long. Tim Ryan in Ohio. Not oh, Tim yeah, Payne. Yeah, yeah, okay. Not Tim Kane. Tim Ryan they, against J.D. Vance. Okay. just ran for Senate like two years, like a year ago. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still think. Just like a big uh, old middle-aged guy. But also, I'm going to see the Pixies here this summer here in Columbus. And uh, I'm excited about that. I had a chance to see them once before in Indianapolis and they were playing a show with Weezer who I have a very complicated relationship with. And they played first and we got there. We were going on usual concert time, which is like, well, nothing starts on time and there'll be openers. And instead the Pixies just played first. We missed like half the set. So I'm eager to go again this summer, but that'll be my first. I don't remember the last time I saw a concert because like COVID happened and then you get a baby and then like, so I don't remember last time I saw anything, uh, an outdoor concert or anywhere, even indoor concerts. So um, I'm eager for that. All right. Anything you're thinking about? What you're thinking, Nathan Baird? Um, no. If, if you don't have one, I have something I want to ask you about. Okay. So, so I, I have a quick double what you're thinking. One is that, and this is not a comment on anything because there are a lot of people who do it. And I'm not infallible. There are times when if you are not a person who lies every day and who lies constantly, I can be dumbfounded sometimes by people who just lie all the time. So that's my only comment. I feel like that would be a way if you want to like divide people up in the world, like some people are this and some people are that or some people like this kind of thing. Like if you lie a lot or don't lie a lot, I think is a very easy dividing line of the populace. And that's not related to anything in particular. It's just how you conduct your business on a daily basis. And sometimes you watch movies and TV shows and you just see people out in the world and on social media. And it's just like, man, how do you lie that much? And that's all I'm going to say about that. It, it boggles my mind because if I just feel like if I lied that much, I'd be terrible at it. I'd get caught all the time. I'd have a knot in my stomach 24 hours a day. And I just don't know how you get to the point where it's just like, ah, oh, I told 20 lies today. It's fine. The other thing is this. I still don't care about baseball. What do you think of the pitch clock? Oh, huge fan. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. 
um, as much as a, a, a as someone who was born in 1978 can be like a traditionalist and, and wishes they had gotten to watch baseball in like the 30s and 40s. And um, but uh, I the, the pitch clock was long overdue. Um, now, I, I understand there are people who have some qualms with it as it relates to, well, do we really need a pitch clock in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth of the seventh game of the World Series? Like, no, we probably don't. Like, that's probably an adjustment that, that can be made. But do we absolutely need a pitch clock on uh, April 17th in a nine to nothing game in the fifth inning in a game that just needs to be over? We absolutely need a pitch clock. The baseball kind of it's one of those things where baseball kind of did it to themselves. Like they, they had let the sprawl time sprawl of the game get out of control and it just needed to be reined in. And I thought this was one of the smart baseball does some astonishingly stupid things and keeps doing them and just shooting itself in the foot and then like taking the bullet out and like wrapping the foot up and like treating it and then shooting itself in the foot again. And just, 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 just stupidity uh, from a, from a, holding it back from being more popular and engaging with people. This is one of the smartest things they've done ever. No, it's good. And it's interesting. I know that, you know, college football is moving towards some stuff where they're going to be trying to right shorten the game by having the clock run a little bit more after out of bounds plays or whatever. And, and I'm sort of like, I don't know, but this is an example of you can make a change. It shortens the game. That's the goal. So that a fan doesn't have to sit there for as long. And it actually, you don't. It's not that you don't lose anything; it's that you enhance the sport by doing it. But I will say, whenever it comes up and people are like, "Oh, I do want to, do you want to rush a great player in an important moment?" It's like, well, I don't know. If you're in an NBA playoff game and the Phoenix Suns are down two, you don't turn off the shot clock. If there's 40 seconds left, you don't say, "Well, we want to let Kevin Durant take his time here." You have 24 seconds to shoot. I don't know what to tell you, man. You have whatever it is, 10 seconds to throw your pitch. So sometimes well, people act like, well. We don't want to rush the greats in in key moments, and it's like, why not? Well, but 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 there is an important difference, and it, it's why I, I listen to the argument that some people would make, in that the essence of baseball, right or wrong, <laughs> is that there is no clock. Like that's always been the thing. Like it's not a game that's decided by artificial time constraints. It's by what happens in the game decides how long the game is. So I, I understand someone who thinks it is sacrilegious or whatever to then add a clock for the first time ever in any way to the game, at least at the major league level, they've been doing it at the minor league level. So I get that. But again, the, the sprawl of the game had gotten to the point where it was just out. There's no reason for some games to take as long as they have. They're cutting what 20, 25, 30 minutes out of games right now. That's, that's a massive amount of time. Like one of the great appeals of, and I think college football actually does have a problem lasting as long as it does sometimes, but like one of the great appeals, <clears throat> like one of the reasons I liked covering college basketball is because you knew, all right, I, I'm, I'm, this game's lasting two hours. Like it's just bang, bang. Like it's, it's, and you, it fits really well from a viewing standpoint. They can stack games up time wise. So I think baseball needed to make this correction. I, I like this more than I liked them getting rid of the shift. I, I didn't really see the need for that. I thought they should have done this before doing that just to see if this alone might have corrected some of the, the problems that they saw out there um, just by speeding up the pace of play with the game they already had would that have alone have made it a, a more appealing product and then maybe added the, the shift thing in later if they felt they needed to. But um, this was just something that, that, that had to happen. And you, we knew it was coming because they'd been doing it at the minor league level when it was seen as being so successful and not, um, and not interfering at the minor league level, then, I, it was inevitable that they were going to bring it to the majors. 
All right, that'll wrap up this edition of Buckeye Talk. We have some stuff planned later in the week. Come back and check it out. We got to get, I got to, we got to line some stuff up before we tell you exactly what we're going to do. But we have some good stuff planned. Go read cleveland.com slash OSU. And we always appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk part of your week. If you care about what happened in other spring games, the plan on the College Football Survivor Show is to run through some of the other spring games that happened this past weekend. Georgia had its spring game, Florida State, USC, Texas. Penn State, no Alabama yet. A couple other schools are doing it this coming weekend, but the plan on the Survivor Show is to run through some other spring games and see what we learn there if you want to take a listen to that. But for now, for Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.